0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, who of course we'll talk about more a little bit later. Learn more at panhandleplains.org and read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Lilia Esqueda if you've lived in Amarillo for a while, if you've done anything with the nonprofit world here, you've no doubt run into Lilia. She's not originally from this area. She was born in El Paso, but she arrived in Amarillo in the 1970s, at which point Amarillo National Bank hired her. And in that role, she became the first female loan officer for any bank in Amarillo. She worked for a until 2010, But there's a lot more to the story after that. She became a member of the Amarillo College Board of Regents, the first Mexican-American woman to have that position. And in 2011, she became the first Hispanic woman to serve as an Amarillo City Council member. Since then, she has served on countless boards and committees. She's continued to invest in this community. It's such an honor to have her here on the podcast to talk to her uh, about her career and her relationship to Amarillo. So here's Lilia Escajeda. Lilia Escajeda, welcome to the Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's, uh, it's an honor to have you. I've known you for a while, but I want to start the same way that I do with most of my guests, and that's just to ask you how you ended up in the Amarillo area. And I know there's a story there,
1: so what brought you to this area? Well, actually, my dad used to come to Amarillo in uh, the late 40s and 50s, and we had lived here for a while and then moved back to El Paso and, you know, Dallas and whatever. But uh, I was familiar with Amarillo because of my dad coming to work here, he worked road construction. Okay. So uh, when I decided to make a move from the Dallas area, I moved back here to Amarillo. Where did you grow up? I grew up in El Paso and in Van Horn, Texas. Van Horn, Texas. Okay. Mm-hmm. What was that like at, at that? Point? Well, you know, we we were all uh, just um, probably related to each other, everybody in the community. And uh, I like small towns, mm-hmm. uh, and I was a kid, so, you know, we played in the... Uh, rock and, and uh, glass yards because there's no <laughs> grass in Van Horn, Texas to speak of, and uh, it, it was just a very uh, familial uh, experience because everybody was sort of related. You were your first cousin, second cousin, okay. and, and that kind of thing. And, and it was, and we all were in the, at the same economic level. We were all poor, so nobody, you know, uh, uh, made anybody feel bad because you know they didn't have money or anything like that because we were all in the same boat.
0: Did you have an idea of when you were a kid of what you're going to do with your life?
1: Absolutely not. I mean, uh, when you grow up poor and you grow up in in a Mexican American family, uh, you know the father is the head of the family, obviously, okay. and uh, you know we just do what we're told, basically. But uh, I was always a very a very curious child. I was the eldest of seven. And I was always a very curious child, and I loved to read. I I, I used to pretend like I could read when I couldn't read. Really? Uh Uh-huh. I'd get a book and just pretend like I knew what I was doing. And so that was probably my lifeline to my future because I always enjoyed learning and reading. And uh, my mother was very supportive of that. My mom was always a housewife. She never worked outside the home. So uh, we knew that if when we went home, mom would be there. And my dad, like I said, worked road construction, so sometimes he'd be gone for days or whatever the job required. So. Okay.
0: Do you know what brought your your family to Texas, how your parents ended up here? Well,
1: I, I don't have the full genealogy. Obviously, all, all our forebears came from Mexico, and uh, we have Spanish blood, and uh, everybody sort of ended up on the border uh, okay. but in El Paso and down through the Big Bend area. Uh, that's why I graduated from Van Horn High School, which is a very small town on, what is it, I-10 that goes uh, all the way across uh, Texas. And it was a very small town. We didn't have much there.
0: Tell me what you did after, you know, after high school.
1: Well, I got married young, right out of high school. And uh, I uh, had my three children. Uh, I have uh, two uh girls and a, and a man and he's the middle child uh, but uh, I always liked to learn. Uh, I was always a teacher's pet because I was I guess pretty smart mm-hmm. and uh, and I and I loved to learn and so all of that sort of contributed to um, my always being curious about what the next step was and so forth. and of course my parents did speak English uh, and obviously we all spoke English. But uh, my parents didn't have any school in that generation, especially if you're a Mexican-American. You weren't required to go to school, right. and you just didn't It wasn't go. expected. No, and so if they even went to the third grade, I'd be surprised. Wow. And they never really talked about it, but they they were uh, literate. They mm-hmm. could read and write in two languages. <laughs> <laughs> was college on your radar, like, once you graduated? was the- No, because nobody in our family had ever gone to college. And I mean, I, I thought about going to college because all of my teachers and, and so forth said, well, you need to go to college. Well, you know, no one in our family had ever been to college. And so how do you even start mm-hmm. if you don't have any support at home or they don't have the tools and you can't expect other people to do it for you? So uh, I, I thought about, yeah, I'd like to go to college. But since no one in my family had been to college, it just sort of, you know, faded away. Yeah, there wasn't a path like no, no, It wasn't like there were an alumni of something, <laughs> right? Uh, and and but everybody in in our community in that small town, we were all in the same boat. I mean, everybody just got married young, had kids, and you know went on about their lives. But nobody really, I can't say nobody did. Teachers would say, "Well, you need to go to college," and but you know they didn't have the resources to. At that time, back in the old days, (laughs) they didn't have the resources to be able to help their students like there is now. Uh, You know, you didn't have uh, all the avenues that you could apply for scholarships and all that kind of stuff. You either had the money or you didn't.
0: So I I know you eventually ended up in the workforce and then, you know, found your way into banking. How did that happen?
1: Well, actually, because my husband became ill and he passed away from from his illness uh, and he was bedridden for a lot of years. I took every opportunity to, to have an, a way to support my family, too. Uh, I were worked, your kids still young when uh-huh. that happened? Yeah. I worked for a, what we used to call a finance company, not a payday lender. Okay. There used to be, and there are very few of them left, companies that lent money. And I used to work for Community Finance and Thrift Corporation. Okay. like, And there was a beneficial, and there were other companies. And they made loans but they weren't at the exorbitant rates. Yeah, of payday not the predatory lenders. lenders. No, not the predatory. They were installment loans and so forth, and uh, and I started working for one of those companies, and I actually rose in the ranks to become uh, like a training supervisor and all that. And I used to travel a lot. Uh, to different uh, parts of our district, wherever that happened to be. And that's how I ended up moving to Dallas at one point because that's where the home office was. So I, I was always uh, a good learner, and mm-hmm. I always tried to better myself. And and that's because of my experience of having worked for a finance company, that's how I ended up being a banker. Okay, <laughs> That's sort of the path because I already knew about lending and, and credit and all that kind of thing that most people... Take for granted,
0: and and so I know you ended up uh, as an adult coming to Amarillo. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, tell me why.
1: Well, my my dad always worked road construction. Mm-hmm. You know, every highway in Texas probably has his stamp of of work on it. And my husband also went to work uh, for. Uh, the company my dad worked for. So they worked road construction, and they moved back and forth and so forth. And uh, we had, like I said, we had lived in Amarillo because my dad had come here f- for work mm-hmm. in the 40s. And, you know, I, they, they were here when the great tornado came through here. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> and, and so uh, then we moved back to El Paso because that's where our family was from. But my dad came back to Amarillo, and, and they settled here. And so, you know, you're kids usually follow, and and that's how I ended up in Amarillo, permanently. Uh, but in between, I had lived in the Dallas area, too. Okay.
0: And you you ended up working for Amarillo National Bank mm-hmm. here in Amarillo. Was yes. that your first employer here, or were there others? Well,
1: I worked for the finance company. Okay. That, the, and, the, and that and, was here. And that was my segue to going to work for okay. Amarillo National Bank, uh, and uh, back before they had branches and any of that stuff.
0: And <laughs> and I know that, that you were... Uh, a little bit of a groundbreaker in in that position mm-hmm. as as a banking officer and as a, a loan officer.
1: Well, here. especially being a Mexican American, I, mm-hmm. I broke the glass ceiling for not only women but for minorities uh, that wanted to you know better themselves and do something. And and Admiral National Bank has been a tremendous influence on me, but they have a- a opened doors. Uh, that I never thought were possible, and that's why I've been able to do the things that I've done because uh, the Ware family always supported uh, whatever it is I wanted to mm-hmm. do. You know, because it reflected back on them too, and so uh, I've been very fortunate that uh, they let me stay on, considering that I didn't have a college education. I,
0: I, I know, and, and that's I, that feels significant. What what was the time frame when when you started working
1: at the bank? At I started A&B. working at the bank in 1975, okay. I believe. I mean, were there
0: discussions when they hired you or when you got the job? I mean, did it feel like, oh, we're doing something different? You know, we're
1: no. Actually, the the uh, manager of the uh, installment loan department, as we used to call it, he was sort of a self person, a renegade, you know, <laughs> and and he had been in the finance company business himself. And so he interviewed me. He didn't even send me to personnel. <laughs> he just hired me. He said, show up for work Monday or hmm. whatever. And uh, and then I filled out the paperwork with the uh, personnel department and so forth. But he knew that I knew how to lend. He knew it, that I knew about credit. He knew that I would be able to tell whether uh, I could make a loan to a person or not. So that's why he hired me.
0: And I, I know that, it, at least in Amarillo, and I, I think this is probably true, throughout Texas, that the Hispanic culture or the Mexican-American culture doesn't always have strong banking relationships. Was was your position and, and you being in that that place of, of authority or maybe representation, do you feel like that was significant here Absolutely, in Amarillo?
1: Absolutely, because people started hearing that there was this lady at Amarillo National Bank that spoke Spanish and that they got a loan from her for $500 and, or they financed a car or whatever. And so they would send their family members to me or acquaintances. And so the word got around that, you know, they could go to the bank and actually borrow money. And, and this was also an era when women in general didn't have the right to apply for credit and get credit without having a male co-signer.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: uh, that was the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that gave women the right to get credit in their own name regardless of their marital status. And so I also became a a beacon of light for women that wanted to start their own credit and so forth uh, of, of all colors. And they would communicate to me that they that I would understand uh, what they were going through because I was also a woman,
0: right? And I, I would imagine that whether it's because you're a woman or you spoke Spanish, that it it removed some of the intimidation factor. I think that a lot of people who don't have, didn't grow up with a bank or don't have a relationship with with anyone in the banking industry, have just you know walking in the door to say I want to open an account that that you're somebody that that they don't feel as intimidated by,
1: right? And and. Uh, it also helped that at that in that era of uh, the mid-70s, uh, the government passed a lot of regulations, first of all, that women had the right to their own credit. They didn't have to have their daddy sign or their mm-hmm. brother or their husband and all that kind of thing. And so women were now free to go apply for credit under their own uh, qualifications and so forth. So that opened up a lot of doors for women to actually start establishing credit of their own.
0: Since you've been part of that industry, uh, for so long in the 70s and the 80s and you know 90s there was a lot of change just in the banking world a lot of a lot of turmoil because there always is in financial markets mm-hmm. and um, you know what were some of the 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 things that you sort of weathered you know related to the city mm-hmm. and the economy and, and some of those challenges well I,
1: I think that for for the general population if if, if you need to borrow money you're you're going to put aside some of your prejudices or whatever because you want the you money. You just want the money. Yeah. But but I did have a couple of people, oh, gosh, the, I didn't know that the bank let people women do this and and so there was some, you know, reflection of what had been before. Mm-hmm. But it, in in general, I uh, I think people ex- were glad that they could have uh, options on who to go borrow the money from and and I have to give All the kudos to the Ware family. At that time, Tal Ware was the president. And for them to have done all of this, I was, as far as I know, and I think I'm pretty accurate, I was the first woman who happened to be a Mexican-American who was hired for a lending position in Amarillo.
0: Okay, period.
1: And I I think that says a lot for the uh, Ware family who uh, allows people to move forward and so forth and... Obviously, um, I retired, but I'm still there. Right, right. (laughs) And so I owe a great deal of gratitude and kudos to the Ware family because now it's third generation that I've worked under, Mm -hmm. and uh, they have always been right on with with moving forward with the times. When did you retire? I retired in 2010, I think. But I don't feel retired because i still with I was going to say day. you're
0: you're still really busy. You just <laughs> moved from from one job to a bunch of other jobs. I, I wonder if you could talk about you know when you did realize okay I'm I'm ready to retire from this professional life. You know what were your plans at that point?
1: I didn't have any real straightforward plans or anything. I knew I was going to stay in Amarillo, and I knew that I wanted to do a little traveling, and I did a little bit. Uh, I mean, I went to South America, and and uh, uh, I've gone. I went to the Olympics. Four years ago. Oh, did you really? (laughs) Yeah, I went to uh, Argentina, Uh, and so a lot of doors opened up for that was possible for me to do some of those things. Uh, But basically, I I have never left the bank because the the Ware family was uh, uh, kind enough and wanted me to just sort of stay on as a consultant. But I I did a lot of community service stuff too, and. So it, it's it, it was just a, a way to um, open up more doors for more uh, females to do the things that they never dreamed they could do, and uh, I, I'm I'm just real grateful to the Ware family for allowing me the freedom to do a lot of things that probably if I had gone and asked permission for, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't. But I just did them, and if and they got the the benefit and and the credit for letting their employees do some of those things. Uh, and I remember uh, when I first started being a lender, I had this lady who came in, and she happened to be an Anglo lady. And uh, been, she says, I'm so glad we finally have a woman lending officer, because if I start having hot flashes, you'll know what I'm, <laughs> what it means. And I thought, well, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, women felt more comfortable with yeah. women.
0: I know that part of the A and B culture that there's there's a, a very big emphasis on the community service side. Absolutely. That that's something they, they actually encourage their employees to do. And so tell me some of the ways you got involved in the community. Because I know you've served oh, pr- the list of boards that you've been on is is probably too long to even try to mention. But but tell me tell me why you did that and, and some of the places that you served.
1: Well, I I, I have always been grateful for uh, what happened to me. And, and 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 I know what it's like to be poor and all that. And I just wanted to have an opportunity and a, and a way to let people know that they could do whatever they wanted to, if they set their minds to it. And because the bank always encouraged us to do service in our community, being on boards and being volunteers and all that, uh, and when I was in high school, I was in every club there was, mm-hmm. and you know, and so I already had uh, what I might call leadership tools to uh, get people to do things. And so for the bank, uh, gosh, for them to address the issue of people not having enough. Uh, dedicated board members, et cetera. And to let us have the freedom to do that is just awesome. Yeah. And so I've served on nearly every board in town. I mean, everything from the MRA Foundation uh, to Los Barrios de Amarillo, which, you know, I helped found back in the early, I helped found a lot of things, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like doing community service. I, I was, I was widowed and, and I never remarried again. Okay. Uh, doesn't mean I'm a saint or anything. It's just, it's just. <laughs> it just meant you it, it had just, some time. I had, your kids I had, had grown, time right? when, when I wasn't doing my, my work and I, I can't think of anything that, uh, that we haven't done because Amarillo National Bank obviously promotes service to community, and our employees, especially our officers, are always involved in some uh, capacity with uh, community boards, uh, school. Obviously, you know that I ran for city council, Mm -hmm. and I was successful for two terms because I didn't run for the third time. Uh, And I've been on the Amarillo College Board of Regents. I've been uh, on the WT Foundation. I mean, I've done a lot of things in the education area because, for me, it's important for everyone to have that opportunity, because I know what it's like not to have exactly yeah the, that opportunity. And so education has always been a really top uh, topic for me. And so I've slowed down a little bit, but not quite completely. <laughs> well, let's let's talk
0: about your your city council experience um, because I know you you did serve for two terms. Uh, it was what 2015? 2011. Okay, twenty eleven. Mm-hmm. All right, was the first term. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to run? I maybe mean, that was right after you had retired uh well, did, was I, that I in just, mind when you did retire no, did you think no
1: no uh, i i had always uh, I, i've always liked to get involved in things that have to do with governing and i just decided and i asked uh, the the wares if it was if they would support me and and was it okay you know because i was still sort of working and they said no go for it and so uh I, I decided to to run. and uh, thanks to the Lord, I won uh, my two terms that I ran for. and it just it was just another way for me to do public service mm-hmm. and be able to represent communities who feel that they're not part of the community, being Mexican American, and for all the other uh, uh, ethnicities that we have in our community. Because I've always been in touch with nearly everybody. Uh, and and so for me, it was it was just an honor to serve the citizens of Amarillo on the city council. And, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I also enjoyed my time with Amarillo College and serving on, on their board. And again, that was an elected position. Right.
0: Were you the first Mexican-American in both of those elected positions? Did that feel significant to you? I mean, did, did you feel like you were... Breaking ground somehow. Well, or? I
1: knew I was, but I don't think that I won because I was a Mexican American. I think it was because I had the knowledge and the tools that I could use to do a good job. And the
0: community knew and, you. Yeah, and you, you had that trust yeah, factor. Yeah,
1: and and I a lot of people in the community know me. And I also served on some state boards over the past. I, can, I couldn't remember all of them, but I served on the Texas Commission for Law Enforcement and Standards It sets the standards for all mm-hmm. peace officers in the state of Texas, and. Wow. Uh, there was a couple of others and for right now I'm, I'm, my mind's gone blank but
0: one thing i know and and i've had this conversation with other people who uh, have served on the city council is that once they got elected the that they they began realizing a lot more about how the city runs and the city government than maybe they knew ahead of time like like there's a there's a learning curve, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes you know, I think there's some surprises like, oh, this is, this is what I'm going to have to do. And I wonder if that was the case for you. Like, did no, you feel like no. you learned a lot more about the city? And well, the- yeah,
1: obviously we, we learn a lot that we don't know as just general citizens, but I had been on the board of the Amarillo Hospital District at the time okay. of the sale. I, the, I, the BSA? Was, uh, no, not BSA. The uh, the uh, Northwest Texas Hospital. Okay. Okay. Uh, and and we had uh, the Amarillo Hospital District that funded a lot of the indigent care. That's what the money was for. Right. And I actually served on that board, and uh, it was probably the most contentious time I've ever had. <laughs> hmm. But uh, but we got the job done, and and uh, uh, I'm I'm still involved in health care. I'm still on the board at Northwest Texas Hospital. Uh, because uh, health care for me uh, is very important because we have so many people that need care and they don't know how to get it, and, and we need to make sure that, you know, they're covered and all that kind of thing. So, But Amarillo Hospital District uh, still exists in, in, inside the city's core because they still have okay. some of the money, and so they contribute, I, I assume, I don't keep track of it, uh, to fund some of the medical care in Amarillo.
0: Did you know that you know those two terms you were on city council was the limit of how much you wanted to serve? I mean, did you think about running again or going back?
1: I felt that after two terms, uh, it was probably enough uh, because you always need new ideas, new people to do something uh, and you, you you get complacent sometimes when you've been on a board too long. Mm-hmm. Or you become very critical because you want to be there and tell them they've done everything wrong. Right.
0: This is how we did (laughs) it four years ago.
1: And this is how you need to do it or whatever. So I think that uh, we need new blood every every so often just to bring new ideas and new methodologies or whatever. So no, I I really uh, didn't really want to serve a third term.
0: You have lived in Amarillo for, uh, I I guess, almost 50 years Mm -hmm. and, and been involved in so many different ways, I wonder if you could talk about how the city has changed. How you've seen the city change since you've been here?
1: Well, actually, one of the things that hasn't changed, and and that I would like to see something happen, is we're still very divided in terms of geography. Mm-hmm. You know, we know we're all, well, not all, most of the. Uh, populations that come down below that have come in like as refugees because you know they have to be resettled. And uh we still have four neighborhoods basically. We right. have Northeast, Northwest, Southeast, and then Southwest. And and it's to me it's pretty obvious and may mm-hmm. it may not be to other people who never leave their neighborhoods. But there are some disparities in in some communities because there's not adequate there's no adequate housing and uh, services are not always available and uh, we we need to make sure that uh, uh, everyone has an opportunity to seek assistance mm-hmm. or whatever it is that may be and I wish that the railroad didn't cut us in half in <laughs> the yeah. freeway because that's that's what divided our community and it's in Amarillo is not the only one you know when they built the interstate highway system they went through all in every city through the minority neighborhoods Mm -hmm. the African-American or the Mexican neighborhoods that's where they built the highways so it divided those communities in terms of physicality and it probably did hamper you know more cohesion because now the highway's right in between your your neighborhood so I don't know. I don't know that anybody else thinks like I do about those things, but those are important factors that define how a city uh, is formed and mm-hmm. how people, you know, identify. And so, you know, if if you live in the barrio, you know, that it's a Mexican neighborhood. If you live in the Heights, you know, it's a black neighborhood. If you live in Northeast, you know, it's mostly an Asian or yeah, Burmese. or refugees. Yeah, the refugee neighborhood. And I don't think it should be that way. I think that we should all sort of be assimilated in some way, fashion, or form. Otherwise, the the refugees that are here, and I don't know that there's any country where it's going to be saying as refugees anywhere, they, they, they need to get out of their traditions and, and become more American. They don't need to lose all their heritage. I haven't. I still speak Spanish. I still do a lot of things that Mexican people do, but uh, that that way they feel more welcome and mm-hmm. more integrated and uh, maybe they have some ideas that we haven't even heard of that would be wonderful for Amarillo. I don't know. And uh, I'm concerned also that we still have a lot of substandard housing mm-hmm. and we don't have enough building, especially in East Amarillo, east of Canyon anyway, uh, that there's not enough development there. Obviously there's development of Truck stops and yeah. all that kind yeah. of stuff, but there's not any new housing going up to provide decent, affordable housing for people. And uh, so, where are they going to live? I mean, if we're going to keep growing, where are people going to live? They can't all afford to live in in uh, uh, expensive neighborhoods.
0: And that, I mean, that speaks to I think some of the complexity of when you do have ethnically <laughs> or racially segregated parts of town. There is that component, but a lot of it is economic too, because you know minorities are not always going to be in the higher earning job positions because of a long history of, mm-hmm. of a lot mm-hmm. of things. But that does keep people from intermingling because some people just can't afford to live, you know, in some sense. parts of town. That's right. And so it it's a problem, and I don't know a good solution for it. Like I, I think there's a lot of steps that need to happen before we well, get there.
1: Well, I I, th- I think it would take a purposeful path to engage with all the stakeholders to arrive at some kind of plan uh position uh to see how we can address some of the more immediate issues that need to be taken care of like maybe um maybe they don't call the police because they're afraid of the police Mm -hmm. uh uh, things like that, I mean, social things that they've brought with them and have with them. And I don't know that anybody's ever held like a round table of all the ethnicities uh, so that we n- get to know each other. I yeah, mean, you know, yeah. we can't keep pointing, oh, yeah, they live over there, you know, and, oh, I don't I don't want to go in that neighborhood. You know, there are a lot of good people everywhere, and some of them just don't have the tools or the skill sets or the education to articulate how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. And so, you, you know, we know that if we go, um, you asked, well, my favorite restaurant was the Bangkok. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's for all nearly all the, now I'm not going to say all of them, because some of them do have houses in some of these neighborhoods. But basically, they're, they're all in Northeast Amarillo. And and I think we should do a better job of integrating and renovating and doing specific projects to bring up neighborhoods that are in decay and Mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. But if they don't ask, it won't get done.
0: I I want to close this section by asking you one more question. And I I know that, you know, you you grew up in in other parts of Texas um, and spent a lot of time there, but you spent most of your adult life, at least a big chunk of it, you know, here in Amarillo. And I wonder like why you've stayed here so long. even after retirement, even after your role with city council was over, like you're you're still here.
1: Yeah, well, of course, my parents were here, and both of them have passed. My mom's been gone two years, three years. And uh, that was one of the reasons because they were getting elderly. And I like Amarillo. I like the clean air. Mm-hmm. I like the lack of uh, congested highways. I like that I can just get on a regular street and not even have to try to get on the highway to get to where I'm going, and it won't take me more than 15 minutes to get across town. Now, some people may want it to be bigger. I don't. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of good things about Amarillo, and and we need to celebrate those positive things and then work on the ones that are less positive so that we can all come together. But I think we—I would love for somebody to put together a way where we can come together with— uh, the different neighborhoods the different quadrants of the city and say okay what do, what do we have to do what what is it that you lack or whatever there there're just so many social issues that are attached to poverty or lack of understanding because of the language and and they depend on somebody else to tell them and they may not may not, may not be telling them the right thing or the translation's wrong or whatever so i th- i think communication is key for everything and i think that as we're growing in, in the city, and I'm glad we are, we need to sort of see if we can get some more growth on the east side mm-hmm. of town and in the north side of town, get new housing developments. And I, I know that the builders are the ones that have to come up with that plan, but, but uh, we can't ignore our uh, community members just because they're a different color, they're a different religion, or you know whatever other criteria people put on on populations. But Amarillo is a great place to live. And like I said, I mean, the clean air is the best thing about <laughs> it. And the lack of congestive traffic. I mean, I, I, I don't mind sitting through, through stoplights uh, because I think, well, if I was in Dallas, I'd be here for hours yeah. <laughs> or someplace else. Amarillo is a great place to live. That's why I've stayed here.
0: Hey is sponsored this week by BookPuma, an editorial firm that provides online learning and book editing services, changing the way authors and publishing professionals interact. This platform at BookPumaOnline.com helps writers finish their books and become published authors with online courses taught by award-winning authors, editors, and industry professionals. To learn more, visit BookPumaOnline.com. This episode is also supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college. He's taken care of my kids' teeth ever since they came along. In fact, my my son Owen just went to the dentist for a cleaning before we took him back to Texas A&M for the fall. Dr. Sauer is a national speaker on Invisalign and he uses that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning. Learn more by following and Dental on Facebook or visit shemindental.com. That's S H E M E N. Okay, I'm back with Lilia Escajeda. Uh, Lilia, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. I know you're aware of it. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a photographic look at the oil boom that began in Borger in the 1920s, a time when the city got a reputation for corruption, greed, and violence. Mm -hmm. It's interesting Mm -hmm. to see a lot of those stories related to Borger. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for?
1: I hope that we have a strong economy that creates jobs uh, that pay livable wages.
0: Okay, I feel like we're making some good steps toward it with some of the some of the work of like the EDC and and the the companies that are coming mm-hmm. in here. But that's always the thing that we need. Yeah. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of?
1: Dust storms. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which which is wind related for sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's very many things that would rise to being negative. I mean, we can't control the weather.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We can control traffic, but not the weather.
0: Okay. What does this area not have enough of?
1: Entertainment for youth, Mm -hmm. unless they're playing some kind of sport. Uh, We need some venues that, that encourage young people to get out and do something besides sit in front of the TV playing games or whatever. And so, I've, and then, for the opposite end of the spectrum, for our seniors, we need to be, have them be more engaged. And uh, I know we have some wonderful facilities here, but I think that we sort of forget about who those people are. And I'm probably going to be in one of those. Uh, <laughs> but we we need to, you know do some storytelling. Let them tell stories or whatever they have to. Also, let them use their minds a little bit more so they're not just sitting there waiting to eat the next meal and stuff, which I hope I never have to do. But uh, it, I think there are a lot of things we can do to enhance the human experience Okay. Uh, because there are a lot of people that really are concerned about that.
0: How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area?
1: I tell them we have the cleanest air everywhere, anywhere, and uh, the wind blows most of the time, and people are friendly, and uh, it's city that's easy to get around in.
0: All right. I think all those are true. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? Polk Street. Okay. Polk Street has seen a lot of activity since uh, you why. worked in that area in the 70s.
1: Yeah, because I used to work for a finance company that used to be right across the street from the old bank before they built a new one. And Polk Street was where all the dress shops were, Mm -hmm. you know, the Hollywood and all the Colbert's, all all those. I mean, I shopped in those stores, so I know. And so a a vibrant downtown, I think, is important for any community. And I think uh, the cities are doing a good job at their businesses trying to bring some life back down to Polk Street.
0: And you were there during a period where it was sort of at the heyday of that time and then, was open. yeah or, you know. and then you saw it decline uh-huh. and get really quiet and sleepy and then now you've seen it come uh-huh. back and so but,
1: and there's some uh, things taking place that are sort of reviving downtown we need a concentrated effort so that people come downtown and see what's possible and have those venues that will provide entertainment and right. booze and all that good stuff
0: well you mentioned this already but what's your favorite local restaurant
1: well, I like the Bangkok because the the food is excellent and there's all kinds of foods there. If mm-hmm. anyone hasn't eaten there yet, it's way out on Emerald Boulevard East, uh, I, I would. T- you'd say, well, why don't you, why didn't she say a Mexican food restaurant? Well, I cook it, so <laughs> it's, it's hard <laughs> to I, find. And a... I used to teach it at Amarillo College. I used to teach oh, Mexican did you really? food classes, I didn't and know that. so uh, be- before we had so many Mexican food restaurants, because I I, I I was asked to teach a class, and so. Uh, I, I like eating beef, obviously, you mm-hmm. know, because we're beef country. So, uh, but I, I'm I'm not real picky about eating.
0: Okay. What's your favorite coffee shop?
1: You know what? I'm not a big coffee drinker, but if I was going to say uh, anything, I would say that Ebby's is inside the Plaza 2 building. He right. He has a really decent uh, coffee place. And, Fairly new, right? Yeah. It's, it's not been there and for very so, long. And so I would go with him because that's where I... Go for an occasional coffee.
0: Okay. And you mentioned eating beef. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan?
1: About a year ago.
0: Right? What yeah. was the occasion?
1: Uh, someone from out, came from out of town and I took them out there, a relative.
0: Okay. Were, did, it, did it meet their expectations? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, everybody likes the fanfare and all that kind of stuff. Okay. I remember the big Texan when they used to be on Emerald Boulevard. I was going to say,
0: you've probably seen it grow. just Because
1: I lived in the, the wood court that was there when oh, we okay. first moved to Amarillo. My husband was still alive, and we actually lived there, and it wasn't a run-down place like it is now. And the big Texan would get on his horse, and he'd be waving. The people yeah. going into the restaurant.
0: <laughs> did, you, did you eat at the restaurant back in those days?
1: I don't remember. We were too poor. Okay. <laughs>
0: Okay, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience?
1: Oh, wow. I think that if there is something that you haven't done or there's someone you haven't talked to, that you just need to do it and never have to worry about it again. You know, sometimes we hold back because we're afraid of insulting someone or hurting their feelings. I, I just think that we we need to be able to go to bed at night and not lose any sleep over what you've done that day. <laughs> That's my motto. If I did something wrong during the day, I won't be able to sleep. Okay. And and so I try to do good all the time so that I don't lose any sleep because I'm getting old now and I need more sleep. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a, that's a good reason to, uh, to maintain a nice, moral, and ethical life. Yes, so you can right. sleep better at night, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, Lilia Scaheda, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank I you for it. having
1: me. It's been a pleasure.
0: And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Lilia for the interview. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. And also thanks to sponsors Book Puma Online, and Dental, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you. So thank you so much for listening to it, as well as the local people who support it financially through Patreon. That's at Patreon.com/slash Amarillo. Hey Amarello's executive producers include Wilson Lemieux, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Jess Heredia, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 262. My name is Jason Boyette